2, and we will continue where we left off last week in this second chapter there in verse 3. We'll make our way this morning through uh, verse 11, and so uh, as you uh, find your way there, if you would, follow along with me as we read uh, the text together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. May God bless the reading of his word. One of the defining markers of the Christian faith, one of the many defining markers of the Christian faith, is the assurance that we have in our salvation. Scripture teaches us that we, as the children of God, as the church, as Christians, can know with certainty and confidence That we are saved. We have this assurance. And this is what John addresses here in these verses. I say this is a a distinguishing marker of Christianity. If you look at the other religions of the world, you see actually quite the opposite of that. If you ask a Muslim if they were to die today, would they go to heaven? They would say, "I, I do not know. Only God knows. In fact, there was a time that the... um, a Catholic Church had a council that met and they addressed the issue of assurance and they said this theology of assurance is vain and ungodly and yet we come here to 1 John and the word of God clearly tells us we can know with confidence that we are in Christ. And the evidence of that salvation that helps us to obtain that confidence according to John here is obedience. Obedience gives evidence to knowing God in salvation. Last week, John offered us four tests to help us to see if we are in the faith. I point your attention again to chapter 5, verse 13, as this running theme, the, the, the driving force of this letter where he says there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so here, in the text that we just read, he gives us several more tests that we'll address in a moment. But first, we we consider what he says there in verse 3, which really sums up the heart of the verses that we just read. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
So far in the passage, John has used several words and phrases to communicate to us this the idea of being saved or being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus. He's used words like eternal life, fellowship with the Father, walk in the light, cleansed from all sin, truth in us. In the verses we just read, he says we know him, in him, in the light, abides in him, the love of God is perfected. All of these things are communicating the same thing, that we are saved, that we have come to know this creator God by faith in Christ. And the word know that he uses here twice in this verse and uses throughout this first letter is used to speak of the certainty, the assurance that we spoke of. He does not say there, and by this we hope we have come to know him. He does not say, by this we think we have come to know him. By this we wish we have come to know him. He says, by this we know with certainty that we have come to know him. That verb, come, there in the original language in the Greek is a past action that has ongoing results. This sums up very well what he's communicating to us here. There is something that has happened in our past, namely that we have come to faith in Christ and there is ongoing transformation. There is ongoing evidence of that event in our lives today and we see that namely through obedience. He says it there at the end of verse 3, if we keep his commandments. So very simply, there is an external obedience in the life of the believer that gives evidence to an internal obedience reality, that you are saved. This is not unique to John and his letters. Paul said as much to Titus in Titus 1.16 where he said, some profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Jesus said as much in John's gospel, John 14.23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will keep my commandments. That word keep is important means a couple of things for us. First, it speaks to a watchful obedience, that there is a desire in the life of the believer to be watchful, to be purposeful in keeping the commands of God. But there's also something in that word keep that speaks to guarding of something that is precious, something that you delight in. So we think back to Psalm 1, and the righteous one is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. He keeps watch over and guards this precious law, these commands that have been given to him so that he might walk in obedience. And so in light of this driving truth that we see in verse 3, Paul, uh, Paul, uh, John sorry, gives us the first of the six tests. You see them there in verses 4, 5, and 6. And all of these tests are marked by this word, whoever. The first one you see there in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. This sounds very similar to the test that he gave back in chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If, If someone says they know him, that they're saved, that they are a Christian, but they do not keep his commandments, they give evidence that they are not saved. And in fact, John as this son of thunder calls them very blunt, uh, bluntly, a liar. Uh, the second test is there in verse 5. And reversely, he says, those who keep the word, those who obey the commands of God, give evidence that they are saved. He says there that the love of God is perfected in them. Probably a better way to translate that is not love of God, but love for God or genuine love. 
genuine love that is perfected in us at the moment of salvation. When he uses the word perfection there, he's not talking about perfection in the Christian life. As we talked about last week, we will not be perfect and sinless in this life, but he's talking about the perfect finished work of salvation, that when Christ goes to the cross, he conquers sin and death once and for all, and if you are in him today, you will be kept. It is finished. And again, this emphasizes the certainty of salvation. He goes on to say there, by this we may know with certainty that we are in him. The third test you see there in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This sounds very similar to verse 3. But here in the test, he emphasizes the imitation of Christ, that we, as the people of God, are to walk in the same way that Christ Jesus walked. Now, there's clearly a distinction from us in the way that Christ walked, the way that he lived on this earth. He was perfect. He was sinless. Again, the call is not here to be perfect. We are not called to be perfect in the Christian life. But there is a call to follow the pattern of perfection and perfect obedience that has been set for us by Jesus. That he was obedient not just to the garden, He was obedient not just through the temptation in the wilderness. He was obedient to the point of death on the cross. So this is something beautiful that John does here. He doesn't just say, obey the commands of Christ. He most certainly does that. He says, look to the commands of Christ and do what he says. But then what does he do? He says, and look what he did. Christ perfectly fulfills the call that is placed on our lives as believers to be hearers of the word and doers of the word as well. Now, something important here that we need to note in verse 6 that we'll come to talk about more later as we get through, uh, as we work our way through 1 John is that word abide. He says there, whoever says he abides in him. We need to understand that these good works, the obedience, the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about come from Christ within us. And as we learn and and grow in our abiding in him more and more, we will see more fruit, more obedience. And so in John 15, 4, Jesus said, Abide in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. This is so important. We need to understand the obedience, the fruit of the Spirit that we see in our lives comes from Christ in us. Now, as as we're reading this, As a modern-day audience, we hopefully, as students of the Word of God, are mindful of something that the original audience would have been mindful of, that this is nothing new. There's nothing new to the message. There has always been an expectation that the people of God walk in obedience before Him. And John says as much there in verse 7. He says, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. God's moral expectation for his people has not changed. But John has one particular command in view here that he will really start to uh, press in on throughout the rest of the letter. He just begins to hint at it here, but it is the command to love. And we see this highlighted in in the final three uh, tests that he gives. So those final three tests, we mentioned there are six. We've looked at the first three. You see the final three there in verses 9, 10, and 11. Again, marked by those words, whoever. And these are very simple, very straightforward. We won't spend much time on them. Verse 9, test number four, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Very simply put, if you have hate in your heart for someone, 
but especially a brother or sister in Christ, you are giving evidence that you are actually in the darkness. He revisits that comparison from chapter 1 between light and darkness. Verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And so if there is love for your brother or sister in Christ, if there is even love for your enemy, You're able to love those who despise you and do wrong against you. You give evidence that you are actually in the light and that you have this desire, not that your brothers would sin or stumble into sin, but for for what is best for them. The final test then there in verse 11, test number six, very similar to the test there in verse nine, but here he strengthens it with words like they are in the darkness, walk in the darkness, and does not know where he is going blinded. Again, strong language that we would not use necessarily in our day in making a defense against someone who may, might disagree with us. But don't miss this before we go any further here. The sobering reality of these final three tests. That John says, if there is hate in your heart, this should be concerning to you this morning if you claim to be in Christ. This is sobering. But again, this is old stuff, right? John says, I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment. Let's go for a moment and consider how this is not a new message. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 Verses 34 through 40, uh, Jesus uh, speaks to this reality of the oldness of these commands, and and in particular, the command to love. And so here in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, Jesus uh, is pressed with this question by this one particular lawyer that the, the Pharisees and Sadducees bring to him. Jesus keeps trapping them, and, and, and so they're like, well, maybe we should bring a lawyer, and maybe this guy can argue against him. And so they come and they say, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And what did Jesus say? You know this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to what he says. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So very simply, what is the greatest command? To love. Love God and to love your neighbor. And Jesus says that the word love, that command to love, sums up, encapsulates all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. All of the commands are summed up in these two things. And so Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament. These commands should sound familiar to you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. And if we were to go here, and we're not going to do it for the sake of time, but Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, we see the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quite simply expounding on, expositing the the law. But back in 1 John chapter 2, there is, though, a sense of newness to the commands. Look at verse 8 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Earlier in verse 3, when he uses that word command or or commandments, he's not using the Greek word that he would use to speak of the law of Moses. He's using a more basic word to talk about commandments and order in general. So John here, in in addressing the newness of the command, already in verse 3 has hinted at something. He's not necessarily or specifically referring to the law of Moses, 
but the commands of Christ. Now, this in no way undermines the law of, of Moses. In fact, Christ and the commands that he gives are very much consistent with the law given to Moses. In fact, Jesus comes and he brings the Ten Commandments and he takes them either, even further. So there in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have committed murder and are guilty of breaking the law. So, so what is John talking about here? The newness that, of this command. He's telling us here, there is something better. There is something fulfilled. There is something quite literally seen in the perfect obedience of Christ that brings about this newness. So what is this newness? Well, first and foremost, it is Christ himself and what he's done. Look there at verse 8 again. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. And at the end of the verse, the true light is already shining. Christ comes into this world and we see perfect obedience. But even more than that, we see for the first time perfect love on display. That Christ displays the love of God perfectly by dying on the cross for those who stand against him in sin and, re and rebellion. So the newness of the command is not the words themselves. But the newness of the command is seen in the perfect manifestation of God's love in Christ at the cross. And when we look to the cross, we have a better picture of what it means to love our neighbor and to love God. Secondly, though, the newness of the command is the fact that it's seen in us as believers. In, in verse 8 there, he says, which is true in him and in you. What does he mean by that? Well, in chapter 4, verse 19, he tells us this in a more plain understanding, an easier way to understand when he says this. We love because what? He first loved us. The only reason we're able to love is because we see the perfect love of the Father manifested in the Son. We know the degree to which we love people because we see it in the degree to which God went to save wretched sinners like you and I. So we've walked through these verses together. We've considered the truth here. I want us to spend our final moments here applying this then to our lives. So think back to verse 3 there. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is the heart of the passage. The evidence of salvation is in our obedience to commands. What do we do with this practically? And, and these things we're going to walk through are going to help us as we continue this journey through the book of 1 John in the coming weeks. So if you're, if you're taking notes, there's five things here that we're going to consider. In light of everything we've just seen. In particular, in light of verse 3. Number one, we must always, as believers, rest in this truth. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law. We saw this last week, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father. He has made propitiation for our sins. And if you are in Christ today, by grace alone, through faith alone, you are no longer under the burden of the law. Christ has taken that burden in your place. And so as we talked about last week, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach grace to yourself daily. 
There's a tension that we've already felt in the book of 1 John, and we're going to continue to feel as we walk through this, this book. And it's also a tension that we feel each and every day in the Christian life. It's the balance between just sinning so that grace may increase. In other words, I'm free in Christ. I can just do whatever I want. And then on the other side, legalism and thinking it's the things that we do that appeal to God. We must find this balance of grace and obedience in the Christian life. So one of the best things we can do is every day is to preach the gospel to ourselves. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of Christ in you and what he accomplished at the cross. Number two, as we think about obeying and keeping these commands, we need to guard against making a law where there is no law. In other words, be careful not to make things into sin for you and others that are not necessarily clear in Scripture to be sin. More tertiary issues. We see a really good example of this in Romans 14. And we won't turn there for the sake of time, but there Paul is talking, addressing an issue there in the church in Rome. And we learn something about the early church that is true of the church today and has been true of the church throughout human history. It's made up of people. There's old people and young people. There are, I'll say smart and dumb, let's not do that, educated and uneducated people. There are Jews and Greeks in Paul's day. There are different backgrounds and traditions. And in some things, our convictions about certain issues in life manifest themselves differently. And so there in Romans 14, they have a particular issue of there are those who want to eat meat and those who do not. They have a vegetarian issue. What do they do with that? And Paul says there needs to be grace in this. The one who only eats meat does so to the glory of God, and the one who only eats vegetables does so to the glory of God. Do not bicker in this. And so when we think about obeying the commands of Christ, we need to guard against legalism and making things into a law or sin that are not. So let me give just two examples that are tangible for us. One of those would be homeschool. There are some of you in this church that have strong convictions about homeschooling your children. There are some of you in this church who have strong convictions that you would love to homeschool, but you can't because of your circumstances. And then there are some of you who have strong convictions that you're going to send your kids to public school or private school. We have different convictions in our church. But we cannot make this into a law where we start to point the finger and say, well, that person doesn't love Jesus as much as I do because they're not doing it my way. Pointing the finger of judgment and sin on something that is tertiary. Another example in our church is, is the issue of head coverings that we see in 1 Corinthians. There are some of you in our church who take a very literal tr uh, understanding of that passage. And, 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 and there are some ladies in our church today who are wearing head coverings. Some of you are looking around because some of you aren't even aware that this is a thing. This is the beauty of what Paul's talking about there in Romans 14. There are some of you who take those verses in 1 Corinthians and don't take them as literally and do not wear head coverings. But there's grace in that conversation because this is not an issue of sin. And may I just say, in that conversation of head coverings, that there's been such grace in that conversation that I want to affirm that we be more and more about in our church when these issues arise that Paul is talking about there in Romans 14. And so, number two, guard against making a law where there is no law. But number three, stand firm in your convictions on these things. There in Romans 14, if we were go, to go there and look at it, in verse 5, he says, Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
Whatever your conviction is on homeschool or head coverings or whatever the issue is, be fully convinced, not because of what you think, but what on the Word of God says. And stand in your convictions. We need conviction in our day, church. We live in a day where people are so flippant and we just believe whatever we want to believe. We, we consider what we saw in the first four verses of 1 John, that there is truth that is certain and we can know it and we can pursue it. We need to be people who are convicted according to the word of God. Our world desperately needs the church to have conviction. We need pastors who will stand behind pulpits and preach with conviction, not water down the message of the word to appeal to those who are outside the confines of the church. We, we must be people of conviction. Stand firm in those convictions. Uh, recently, a pastor that I uh, uh, listened to, and he, he's written some books that I have read, he was speaking at a, at a conference, and he was talking about end times. And, and so there's different views on how we interpret the end, and, and in particular the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and in his, his sermon, he essentially said, if you don't hold to my view of the end times, you don't believe in the Bible. And just so you know, I disagree with this dear brother on his end times view. And man, people were all over the internet. Can you believe he said that? Such harsh words. What is he doing? And I think to myself, man, I am thankful for a brother in Christ who stands behind the pulpit and preaches with conviction. Even on things that might be more tertiary, we need to be people who are convicted and stand in our convictions. We, we should not be offended by differing views. Hear this, it is not unloving to disagree inside the confines of the church. And it is also not unloving to speak truth to a lost and dying world. And we'll talk more about this when we get to 2 John. So stand firm in your convictions, but number four, we need to be able to disagree in grace. There in Romans 14, in the first verse, John, uh, uh, Paul, man, I keep getting John and Paul confused. I apologize. I'm going to do that the whole time we're in this letter, I promise you. Romans 14.1, Paul says, do not quarrel over opinions. We're going to have disagreements on things, and we should be able to disagree in grace. Now, I want to use an illustration here to help us think well on this. As a Southern Baptist church, we have a statement of faith that we hold to. There's the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And if you have joined this church in recent years, that is one of the things that we have asked you to affirm. So if you're seeking to join our church, I would encourage you to go read the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is our statement of faith. And there are certain convictions in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 that we we want to hold to unashamedly, that we believe are guardrails that will help serve us well as a church to strive for health. And some of these things are tertiary issues. One of those would be baptism. We as a church believe that baptism is by immersion for those who have been saved. There are other Protestant denominations who see baptism as more of a, 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 a sign of the covenant, and so they baptize their children. We disagree on this. And so if someone wanted to come and join our church and they held to that view, we would graciously and kindly tell them this is probably not the church for you. There are other God-fearing, gospel-centered churches who hold to that view. We can do that in grace. And another example would be women pastors. We affirm that the role of pastor is only to be held by a man. This is not to say that people who disagree with us on this issue are not saved. 
But we are saying as a church, this is a conviction that we have. And if you want to join a church, and we hope that you do, this is essential to your your sanctification, becoming like Jesus, that this is not the church for you. And that's okay. There's grace in that. Inside those those guardrails, though, there are differing issues that we can then disagree on in this corporate fellowship that we share in. And so again, homeschool, head coverings, whatever those issues might be, in times issues, that we can disagree on those issues in grace for the sake of fellowship. Remember, John is writing to emphasize the importance of fellowship. So we can fellowship together and have unity under the banner of the gospel and disagree on things we have strong convictions on. But we can also do it in grace. And so a phrase that has helped the church throughout its history in this is is a phrase you've probably heard before, in essentials, unity. What are those things that are essential to the Christian faith, the things that are essential to salvation? We must stand unified in those. But in non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. May this be said of us. May we be gracious in these conversations. Fifth and finally, though. So number four, just to highlight there, disagree in grace. But finally, we need to affirm the clear call of obedience in Scripture, that we are to keep his commands. And so there are clear commands in Scripture that we find in the Old Testament and in Jesus' teaching and in the epistles that are simple and plain for us to affirm. We, we oftentimes call these imperatives. That's the word that is used to describe these commands that we see in Scripture. But the question then comes to us of, what do we do with those weird laws and commands that we see in the Old Testament? Things like Leviticus 19 that says you're not supposed to wear two different types of material in your clothing. So for those of you who have on cotton and polyester today, you're a sinner. What do we do with that? What about Exodus 21 that tells us what to do when our ox gores our neighbor? I'm pretty sure no one in this room has any oxen. If you do, please come find me after the service, as I'm sure you will. What do we do with that? What do we do with the ceremonial laws, the worship laws that we are no longer under, especially like in Leviticus 5 where it talks about sacrifices for guilt offering and bringing a ram. We no longer bring sacrifice in our worship. Christ is the final sacrifice. So what do we do with these unique laws that we find in the Old Testament? Well, there's three things we can do here. Each of them are unique. Each of them are also somewhat similar. All of them are helpful in their own way. So some similarities here, some uniqueness, but three things that I'd like to offer to you in in thinking about these unique things we see. First, and and it is helpful for us to identify, especially in the Old Testament, there's, there's really three types of law. We have civil law, which would be the law that God gives to govern that nation that lived uh, in, in the Middle East all those years ago. And so we would see this in what you do if your ox gores your neighbor. This would be a civil law. We have ceremonial law or the worship law. So what was the law that God gave to the people of the Old Testament to worship under in the tabernacle, in temple worship? And then thirdly, we have moral law. And so what we could do is say, well, we were no longer living in, in Israel in uh, 3,000 years ago. Uh, so we can set aside the civil law. We, we, we have a new way of worship. We set aside ceremonial, and so we hold to the moral law. Again, this is helpful. Another view, the second view, is, would be to say, well, what does the New Testament affirm? The things that we see affirmed, the laws that we see affirmed in the New Testament, let's hold to those, and then the things that aren't in the Old Testament, we can either set aside or just think critically on. Again, this is, this is somewhat helpful. 
But a third option is simply to rest in something we've already talked about this morning, that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly. And if we simply look to our master and our Lord and walk in obedience to him and the way in which he walked, guess what? We will obey the law of God because he did it perfectly. This is not to say that Jesus comes and casts aside the law. In fact, Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in this fulfillment, we see that when we walk as he walked, we will find ourselves obeying the laws of God. What do we do with all this? Well, first of all, when we have these laws in the Old Testament that are somewhat unique, that we recognize we are no longer bound to, we need to take the heart of those laws. Don't miss this. So in Leviticus 19, when God tells his people to not wear two different types of fabric in their clothing, he is telling them to be set apart from the nations, to be holy. So the implication for us today in the church as Christians, guess what? We should dress differently from the world. Simple. Acts chapter, or Exodus chapter 21. What do we do when our ox goes in our neighbor's yard and, and, and causes them harm? Well, again, nobody here has oxen, but we have animals. What do you do when your, when your dog gets in your neighbor's yard and digs up their flower bed week in and week out and is biting their children? Well, we love our neighbor as ourself, and we take care of our stuff. Take the heart of the law and apply it through the lens of the gospel. But then what about ceremonial law? So Leviticus 5, 14, what we do when, uh, in sacrifice with, with rams and goats, we are no longer under this. Again, take the heart of the law. If you read through the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, you see something very clear. God clearly regulates and sets the standard for worship of his people. This was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. So we don't have to guess and make up what we do when we come here on Sunday mornings. The stuff we do on Sunday mornings is not just something that we sat down and said, hey, maybe we should do this. No, the things that we do are things that Scripture tells us to do. Nothing more, nothing less. We read the Word. We pray the Word. We sing the Word. We preach the Word. We observe the Word in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. So take the heart of those laws. Secondly, though, we need to affirm most, most assuredly that God's nature does not change, nor does his moral standard. So preach the law. Preach the Ten Commandments to the lost and dying world. Hold up the mirror of the law to them so that they can see their sin, but then most importantly, see their need for a Savior. But just as we said last week, preach the gospel, but also preach the law to yourself. Preach obedience to Christ. Finally, though, and this is very simple, when we think about this call to obedience in the Christian life, we just simply need to learn to recognize the plain, clear commands of Scripture. And so the only way we can do that, dear friends, is by reading the Word. Swimming in the Word, meditating on the Word day and night, and as we do, guess what? Those clear commands will rise to the surface and call us to repentance and obedience. So I want to close with something different. In light of this, this, this call on the life of the believer to obey the commands of Christ, I just here in the, in the last few minutes here, I just want to read some of these plain, simple, clear commands that we see in Scripture. 
And my prayer has been throughout this week as I've, I've been reading over these commands, is as, as we read through these, that the Spirit of God would convict us of sin and call us to obedience. So the, these are the commands of Christ. These are the clear, clear commands of Scripture. Now I'm just going to simply read through these, and I pray that we would meditate on these, that we would test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Allow the Spirit of God to move in our midst this morning. Mark 1, 15. Repent and believe the gospel. Matthew 28. Make disciples. Matthew 22, verse 37. Love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 39. Do not be anxious. Matthew 6, 34. John 14, 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Matthew 5. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Love your enemies. Matthew chapter 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Forgive your brother from your heart, Matthew 18. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, Ephesians 6.1. Rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4 4. Put to death what is earthly in you. Colossians 3 5. Put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Colossians 3. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Colossians 4 1. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not grow weary in doing good, 2 Thessalonians 3.13. Do not speak evil against one another, James 4.11. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Church, there is confidence to be had today as believers in the life that we have in Christ. And it's not a confidence that we have in ourselves, but it is a confidence of Christ in us. If you are truly saved today, there will be evidence of this truth that manifests itself in how you live this life. The confidence that you have in your salvation is not that you prayed a prayer 20 years ago or that you walked an aisle, or that you had an experience at a youth camp. The confidence of your salvation rests in Christ and Christ alone. And the outworking of his spirit in your life that is manifested in fruit and obedience. Find confidence to that today, church. Let's pray.